Thanks, Tim. Good morning. It's good to... Are we on, Mike? Testing. Testing. on. Now testing. Are we on? Testing. Testing. Should I just use the handheld? Was I on? Testing. As soon as I take it off, right? I'll just use the handheld. Sean and Carrie have an anniversary this week, right? Happy anniversary. Did I miss anyone? Miranda. Miranda Miller, Andrew and Joanna's daughter, has a birthday this week. All right, I think that's all of those. So I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned those. And um, also, I was not not sure how many of you are aware, there's a group of guys who were out at the Grand Canyon this weekend. Um, yesterday, I think it was, they ran rim to rim to rim. 45 miles, um, and two guys, Brent and Kendrick, from church here, uh, just completed that yesterday. So, kudos to them, because that's, that's some brutal, grueling miles to be putting on. So I think the main point, main idea with a run like that, at least in my mind, would be just survive. Just don't die. Anyway, so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1. Um, our, text, our text goes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 12, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Um, I'm simply going to, we're going to go up until verse 22 of chapter 1. We're just going to stop there. Um, and I'll allude to the rest of it at some point here in the sermon, but... Um, if you have your Bibles, to see, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read, I want to actually read it um, from the New Living Translation. Um, when I read this first um, in my ES, in the ESV and whatnot, it was like, what? I had to read it a couple times, like, what in the world is he saying? Um, so I'm going to read it in the New Living. It, it just, it says it pretty clearly, and then we'll get into the sermon Verse 12 says, We can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially towards you. Our letters have been straightforward and there is nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope that someday you will fully understand us 
even if you don't understand us now. Then on the day when the Lord returns, you will be proud of us in the same way we are proud of you. Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice. First on my way to Macedonia, and again when I returned from Macedonia, and then you could send me on my way to Judea. You may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I like people of the world? Am like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you, and as God's and as God's ultimate yes, He always does what He says. For all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised to us. So that's as far as we're going to, going to read. Um, it goes on then and, and talks a little bit about what some of the issues were that, um, or why Paul didn't make his visit back. But I'll touch on that in a little bit. But So to start with, um, a question I want you to be thinking about, um, or I guess if I would ask you, have you guys ever been disappointed in life? I mean... It, I don't know where you've been living if you haven't been. Um, it's a part of life. Disappointment is a part of life. And it, it comes from so many different places. Um, sometimes it, it's rejection from a friend. Um, sometimes it's things that we've dealt with in church that have been difficult, that leave us disappointed, disappointed maybe disillusioned. Um, there's things like unmet expectations, business dealings, that have gone bad, businesses that have failed, you name it, on and on and on you could go on the list of disappointments that you faced in your life. So as you think about those disappointments, let me read a quote to you from a a Laura Story song um, that's so powerful. I'm not sure what the title of the song is. What did blessings come through raindrops? That song, maybe it rings a bell to you. Ask my wife. She could tell you what the song is. Um, but the, the phrase that I want to read and what I want you to think about with disappointments is what if the greatest disappointment or the aching of this life is a revealing of a thirst this world can't satisfy? So what if? What if you and I take our disappointments, the things that we've been the disappointments that we've been dealt with or dealt in life, and we ask, what's it pointing to? A couple weeks ago, Brent alluded to this idea um, when he talked about suffering. He said that something along the lines that suffering reveals who we really are. And I'd like to to think kind of along that same line with disappointments reveal, I believe disappointments reveal longings that are deep down with inside of you that may not be revealed otherwise. So what I want to look at this morning is how do we deal with disappointments? What happens if we don't? 
Um, but how do we deal with disappointments? And Paul, and then look at two different ways that Paul, I think, points the church at Corinth to in dealing with their disappointments. Um, so that's kind of where we're going with this. Um, but in just the idea of dealing with disappointments, what was, what was going on here in the church in Corinth? I don't know. And you read First and Second Corinthians, and obviously there's a couple places it alludes to another letter that was written, um, I think probably in between here, or maybe even a couple more after that. Um, but this was a church that had its struggles, but it's a church that was very real in who they were and in their, their relationships. Um, <clears throat> so the, the issue that's being dealt with right here that Paul is, Paul is addressing with the church at Corinth is his plan it said there in the middle part of it. It's, his plan was to be at Corinth, then to go to Macedonia, and then come back to Corinth before he went on, I think maybe to Ephesus. But the second time, the second visit to Corinth never happened. And so people were upset. And I can't help but think, surely there's something else, there's something more behind it. Um, obviously Paul had opposition there, but there's some, something in that change of plans struck a nerve or struck something in them um, that, that stirred up some deep things in them, I believe. <clears throat> and Paul, Paul actually, in numerous times throughout, this, throughout the second, second Corinthians here, he comes back and he defends his decision not to come back. And so if you want to read verses 23 um, and chapter 2, verse 11, read that sometime. He, Paul gives some explanations why he didn't come back. It was for their sakes that he didn't come back. But the church at Corinth, with that change in plans, they were accusing Paul of saying, you're fickle. You're, when you tell us, yes, you're going to come, you actually mean no. You're being a people pleaser. You only tell us what we want to hear. Um, you are, you're coming with a hidden agenda. And I think verse 13, um, kind of, that kind of struck me as I read verse 13, and Paul's saying, there's nothing that we ever wrote that was something written between the lines. Um, but where does that kind of thinking come, come from? So, but before I do that, two practical lessons. <clears throat> two practical lessons, and then we'll just move on. For Paul to say he's going to come and then not come, that matters. What you say and what you do matters. So you can't live one way in your business world and another way in ministry world. You can't live one way in your home, another way here at church, and then another way at school and another way at work. How you conduct yourself in everyday life will affect how your, how your, how your testimony is, is taken. That's just the reality of it. <clears throat> and the other one is, very simply... People are going to disappoint you. And I think in some sense Paul's acknowledging that um, to them, but he's also giving his explanation for it. But instead of just defending himself, I love how Paul points them somewhere. He points them to Jesus. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I would like to suggest to us this morning, because maybe I read into it too much, but in verse 13, I wonder if there's not a little bit of cynicism going on um, with the people. Has anyone here ever been cynical? 
Better not raise your hand, right? If you are, you're joining me because when we get we deal with or we've been dealt disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, if that's not dealt with properly, I believe we become very cynical very quickly. Um, I think it's probably not the only reason we become cynical, but I, I just wrote down here: disappointment that is ignored or denied leads to cynicism. So cynicism actually means um, denying the sincerity of people's motives or actions. And it automatically assumes that there is a hidden motive. Another thing with cynicism, when I'm cynical, I project my own pain onto someone else. When you become cynical, or when I become cynical... You always expect the worst. There's no more negative outlook in life than when I become cynical. And I think perhaps when, when our disappointments, when we just ignore those, that's when we become cynical, we become negative. Whatever someone does for us, we think there's a hidden agenda, there's a hidden motive behind it. Um, there's nothing good that could come from it. I remember years ago... Uh, it was not long after my father-in-law passed away when, when everything in life felt like no matter what, was, what we did or what I did, it just went wrong. And I, I remember I had this kind of a wake-up call because I was out doing a job that is almost like therapy for me. It's my favorite thing to do on the farm. And all of a sudden I realized I wasn't enjoying this one bit. I was expecting something to go wrong. That's kind of what cynicism does to us. I mean, you just, everything is negative. And perhaps the greatest thing that cynicism does to us is it robs us of hope. And when we are robbed of hope, that's a pretty bleak outlook on life. But I believe that what happens um, when we ignore and suppress the reality of the disappointments in life. And I think the, the church at Corinth here, I think the people were disappointed that Paul didn't come. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to be disappointed. So think, think about it. Most Paul had started this church. I wonder how many of these people Paul had actually led to Christ. And so suddenly, this guy that they looked up to, who was their, kind of their spiritual father, almost, it almost, suddenly it feels to them like he's going back on his word. We can't depend on him. And so they're dealing, I think they're struggling and they're dealing with this disappointment. And maybe they become a little bit cynical. And when we become cynical, we lose our hope. So what do we do? What do we do with disappointments? What's Paul going to point us to? We're going to spend the most of the time now in just verses 19 to 22 because that's kind of the, it's kind of the center of, of this whole portion of scripture. So keep in mind one thing. Disappointments reveal the longings of our heart. They reveal that things are not as they should be. And I I don't think I have to explain that to you. I think you get what I'm saying with that. So what do we do? How do we deal with our disappointments in a healthy way? First of all, you have to recognize them. Um... I think sometimes, and I wonder, 
I wonder if we, we simply try to ignore the disappointments or act like they're not there because we want to, we want to look like we've got it together. And when we acknowledge that we've got disappointments and hurts in our life, we're acknowledging that things aren't always as they, as they should be. And that portrays something maybe that we, we want to try to hide behind. But people will let you down. Life will give you disappointments. And so Paul very simply points the people back to Jesus. And he says in verse, um, it's in verse 19 and verse 20, the end of verse 19, but in him it is always yes. So that might be kind of a, a weird way to put it. But what Paul's telling him, as fickle and as broken as this world is, there's one place that you and I can go to that will always be sure. Um, <clears throat> the word yes um, is used quite a bit. Um, Jesus uses it quite a bit. Um, when he does his teaching, when he teaches a parable, then he say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, it's that same word. Um, in Revelations, it uses the word when it talks about, even so, come Lord Jesus. Um, surely. So it's this, Paul, Paul is, Paul's pointing him to Jesus, who is this rock-solid foundation. And he says, so with people, sometimes it's yes and it's no. And sometimes you don't know which way it's going. It's fickle. It's, um, it can change. It's kind of like a, something shifting in the breeze. But with Jesus, it's always Yes, always. There's never going to be any wavering, no fickleness in him whatsoever. And not only is Jesus the ultimate yes, he's also the fulfillment. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So I want you to think about this. Because God did not simply, God didn't simply send us another round of the Ten Commandments. He didn't simply give us a bunch of pieces of paper, scripture, yes, and say, here's what you do when you face disappointments in life. He sends his son in flesh and blood to walk as you and I do, to face the disappointments in life that you face. And he shows us exactly what to do with our disappointments. And that's so beautiful. So Jesus actually comes and he deals with, um, well, think about the disappointments that Jesus faced. Look at the rejection that he faced from his best friends, his followers. Um, everything in life that you and I faced, Jesus has faced. And in Jesus we find, we find truth, we find certainty in the midst of the fickleness of this world. We find the answer to the deepest longings, to what the deepest longings of our soul really are. And we find the space for the healing for the aches of this life that Laura Story talked about. And when we find that confidence in him, I believe that what cynicism has robbed us of, hope, begins to find its way back into our lives. So how did Jesus fulfill all the promises of God? I mean, you could go back and talk about, look at all the um, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he came. And he did all that. All the promises that we have in Scripture um, that Jesus fills in us. 
But sometimes when we're dealing with disappointment or we see someone dealing with disappointments or pain in their life, we throw around the promises that were given in Scripture like cliches. Drives me crazy. Um, But I do it. I, I catch myself doing it. But I don't think that's helpful. Think, so someone's going through some dark period of time, just some, hey, everything works together for good. Do you want, there's truth in that. That's not what someone might need to be hearing at that point. What I think we're invited to is to really wrestle with the doubt and the disappointment rather than dealing with cliches. Because I think that can actually lead to further disillusionment. The longer I live, the more I become convinced that God longs for his people to wrestle with him. To wrestle with him with the hard stuff. You heard Brent talk about it last or two weeks ago about wrestling with if God is good, why is there all this suffering? Because when we don't wrestle with it, we don't allow ourselves to be real. I don't think there's any one of us who's not drawn to authentic, honest, real faith when we see that in a person. Faith that isn't fake. But I think that kind of faith is only found in our wrestling with those hard questions. So where does honest wrestling, really hard wrestling, where does that take us to? I believe when we truly wrestle with those hard questions the one place where I keep coming back to, and I think it needs to be central to all of it, and I think that's where Paul is taking the people, is back to the foot of the cross. He points to us, as he does the people at Corinth, back to the foot of the cross, because Jesus, on the cross, he deals with all our disappointment, and um, the disappointment and the pain that we all feel. So on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. We all believe that, right? I think that's, we all believe that for sure. But what if Jesus went to the cross, he took, he dealt with disappointments. What if he took your disappointments and my disappointments to the cross? Isaiah 53 talks about it. It says, he bore our grief, which I think alludes to our disappointments, the things that we we struggle with. He bore that on the cross. He carried our sorrow. He carried our pain onto the cross. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to face it anymore. It doesn't mean that the pain's just going to disappear and go away. But when we come to the foot of the cross and we look up and we see Jesus hanging there saying, I'm bearing this for you, we realize that we don't have to carry it alone. And when we're able to bring that, those disappointments, and instead of simmering and letting those things fester in our hearts and becoming cynical, and if we bring those to the foot of the cross and we lay those down, it's like a burden, rocks being taken off your back, and you lay them down, and there's freedom, there's healing that begins to happen in deep within your heart and your soul. And when that happens... What cynicism has robbed you from is hope. That hope begins to be restored and you begin to look at life completely differently. The circumstances around you may not be changing, but your perspective of it is because of what Jesus has done for you. 
So Jesus is that foundation that we build on. And the centrality of the cross is what Paul keeps bringing us back to. So not only, and this is, um, let, me, let me just read what I wrote down. Maybe it'll make more sense. Or maybe it won't, I don't know. Disappointment reveals the longings of our heart, my first point. And at the cross, those longings find healing and hope begins to come alive. But then Jesus died, he rose again and he ascended. And then what did he do? He sends the Holy Spirit. And I want you to look at what Paul, how Paul refers to the Holy Spirit because I think the presence of the Holy Spirit brings certainty to our hope in a way that nothing else can. Um, the first song that the worship team sang up here said, Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I want you to look down in verse 22. I'm going to read this. Um, this will be in the ESV. I'm sorry, verse 21 and 22. And it is God who has established us with you in Christ. He has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I want to look at those two things just in closing. The seal that God has placed on us and the spirit as a guarantee now, I want to look at what, what that actually means for you and I today. <clears throat> if you own a car or whatever it may be, do you have a title that's notarized, right? I hope you do, or you're in trouble. It's probably not yours. Um, but that notary that's on there is official, gives you the official ownership of that car. That's kind of the idea of, that he's talking about with this seal. So a seal was something that was common um, during that time. You'd, a king would write a letter, and he would roll it up, and he'd put his official seal on that. And that seal meant that this was official business. No one but the person who is authorized can open that seal. So there, there's a lot of different ways you could go with a seal, but the thing that I want us to think about today is a seal was attached to something. It could be a letter, it could be um, a piece of furniture, or even pottery. Chapter 4 talks about earthen jars. Um, It could be placed on a piece of pottery to give ownership or so you would know who made it, that this was something that was official. It was put on there to give it authenticity, to give authority, and to reflect ownership. So the seal that you bear that says that you are God's, that you belong to him, I can't see it. You can't see it. But in the, in the spiritual world, I believe that seal is incredibly visible. And it signifies, it gives ownership of whose you are. There's a lot more you could look at with that, but we're going to move on to the, to the, last, the last phrase there. Um, the Holy Spirit is our, in our hearts as a guarantee, because it ties into that idea of it being a seal. The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee to that seal, a security of ownership. 
King James uses the word earnest. That's not a word that um, is very common at all. It uses that instead of the idea of a guarantee. But the idea that's being presented here is that the Holy Spirit is given um, this idea of a guarantee or an earnest is a down payment for something. Um, Jerry, you sell a dog to someone, or they say they want a dog. You ask, they give you a deposit or down payment, right? That gives them a right or the ability to pick from one of his puppies. It's this guarantee um, that they're going to follow through with this purchase. Or it's also used as, thankfully we don't do this anymore, if a guy wanted to get married, he'd give a dowry for his wife. That's the same idea. He would give a dowry to the family as a down payment. So what's the idea? It's the idea that we're engaged, right? We're engaged, and that means there's something to look forward to yet. <clears throat> but that idea is used... This, this is, I, I wasn't aware of this until I began to study. Um, in other places in Scripture, Paul uses the same idea later in Second Corinthians, says... For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That phrase is powerful. What's mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit in you is that guarantee that one day... Things will be as they should be. We may not experience that complete wholeness now. But there's something that's coming when mortal will be swallowed up by life. Ephesians 1, 1 it says it this way. We are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. So the spirit is given to you as a guarantee of whose you are and of what is to come. So the more expensive the item that you're buying, the greater your down payment has to be. If you're buying a dog from Jerry for 5,000 your down payment's going to be higher. If you're buying a piece of property for 250000 your down payment is going to be a lot higher. So who does God send? He sends himself as the Holy Spirit to indwell you and I as a down payment, as a guarantee for whose we are, but also as a guarantee for what is to come. So there's a commitment it's kind of like an engagement ring, if you want to think about it that way. An engagement ring signifies that that bride and that groom are committed to each other. But it also signifies that the wedding has not happened yet, that the wedding is coming. It's something that they're looking forward to. It's a commitment from the giver and the receiver to each other. And I believe it points us forward to when the longing in our hearts that is revealed by disappointment. So disappointment can actually point us to something that is so exciting and that will be so fulfilling 
words can't even give it, I don't know, the words can't even describe it. So as you look at, as you deal with disappointment in life, remember, you're going to, unless you stick your head in the sand somewhere, actually that would be pretty disappointing too, so you will face disappointments. So rather than allowing yourself that disappointment to fester and become cynical, take it to the cross. Because Jesus took that disappointment there for you and for me. And remember whose you are. He places his seal on you. And a person, an artist, who puts his signature on his piece of work does so because he is extremely proud of that work. He wants everyone to know whose it is. You bear that seal. God says, you're mine, and I'm not going to hide it. And that Holy Spirit gives us that guarantee that fulfills that longing for wholeness that will be fully experienced one day when we get to heaven. Let's pray. Thanks, God, for... For taking, for taking everything that you did on the cross. God, so often we look at life and we can get so disillusioned with life when, when so many things get thrown at us and finally we just feel like giving up. We'd rather just sit back and not do anything. But there's no life in that. There's no hope in that. God, thank you for what you did on the cross Thank you for the healing that you bring for the disappointments in life and for giving us the assurity of whose we are and who we are. May we live that way going forward. Fill us with hope. Fill us with confidence to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.